Shallow words bring nothing new. Shallow words bring nothing new. It could suck. Hi everybody, Will here. Welcome to Superstructure. We have uh, co-host Max and back in the Superstructure, in and through and all at once through the Superstructure is Natty Smith. What up? This week we're um, talking about Antonio Gramsci. Uh, We wanted to do Gramsci after the last episode that we did, which was all about talking shit on Marx because we just want to go after every possible sacred cow. Um, you know, Will is being a bit tongue in cheek with thinking about, you know, just that we're just like talking shit about Marx or going after sacred cows or um, passing notes in class, which I think is one uh, one way some some uh, someone a hater talked about this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, which is to say that we're not like going after sacred cows in a sort of purely negative mode, mm-hmm. right? I think the point of this is, is actually like even to, in a sort of Gramscian way, really enact the process of the, a counter hegemony, but in the idea realm mm-hmm. and in, in the way that the left has hegemonically, uh, structured itself around particular modes of thinking and particular frameworks um, for a long time now. And so it's actually not this sort of antithesis, antithesis game where we're just trying to sort of poke people in the eye and make people <laughs> feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. But rather, ultimately, this is about like really circling the wagon fully and redeeming people's impulses. But taking the tools that we have and that we're using at, at, at hand and never taking them for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's ultimately a way of saying why we're, we're taking on Marx and taking on Gramsci on this podcast is to, is to really get at and hone in on what some of these problematic tendencies produce contemporarily, right? Like I I don't really care about Gramsci as Gramsci Mm -hmm. for himself. Um, but I care about the way people think about um, political movements and political struggle, and Gramsci is intrinsic to that process on the left right now. Gramsci, as we'll get into, has, I mean, like, he's very interested in talking about ideas and talking about the superstructure and taking culture and all of these things really seriously. So we definitely don't want to just throw out Gramsci. Uh, there's things that we want to redeem um, in in all of these people. But I think that as we'll find in our close readings, Gramsci wants to talk about concepts like hegemony and he wants to talk about cultural hegemony on the terms of a very uh, Hegelian framing that Marx himself also picks up, which is the working class uh being the you know essentially being humanity acting for itself and the the problem of capitalism and capital in in Marx and in Gramsci uh Gramsci adds uh nuance to how ideology works toward this but the idea is that the working class is not 
humanity acting acting for itself for its own interests the working class is acting in the interests of a small few uh who own capital i you know this is going to be a familiar story to everybody um and so we don't want to throw out hegemony or talking about cultural power and cultural influence but we do want to transcend this narrow framing to make room for analogical cultural production by which you know we mean not just a surplus that is the perpetuation of the working class for itself all unified as one whole but can account for our individual agency that analogically coexists with our collectivity. Yeah. So pulling back, I think before we dive in, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you know Natty has a, has a, about 80 screenshots pulled up, ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I as always. I mean, you know, that's I just have like more screenshots than humanly possible. Yeah, and so a thesis has organically emerged from that that Natty yeah. will share with us. <laughs> it's the will of history, so. That's right. Well, the will of history is 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 uh, our co-host today, but it's the other will of history. Um, no, no pressure. That should be no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was actually thinking of changing my Twitter name from a going account to analogical will or something like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, sublated will. I I don't know. Yeah, we can workshop it. We can workshop it. I mean, yeah, you know. we'll workshop it offline. I guess is what you're trying to say. We'll workshop it on the factory floor. Yeah, yeah. I just enjoy um, that you get mad if I like. We can't use will the wrong way. You know. <laughs> that's right. You no, cannot, will yeah. will is univocal. <laughs> we have standards. Okay, we have standards. Um, so I think to pull back, we wanted to begin with reading a sort of. Uh, an essay from Amber A. Lee Frost, actually, from 2018. You know, obviously, Amber A. Lee Frost, a, a uh, Chapo co-host, and brands herself as a part of the anti-woke left. I think one thing that I think we, we find kind of funny about Amber Lee Frost is actually she's kind of a good writer. I enjoy the hell out of her. It's like Matt Taibbi. Just like, he's even when he's unhinged, you're like, yeah. you're fun, I guess. <laughs> yeah, she's she's fun she's fun to read. Um which I think makes the the project that that she's embarking on all the more uh let's say um misguided. <laughs> um which in <laughs> th- thanks for giving voice to my subtlety now. We have um, what on this podcast we call an amber alert. Oh my god, is... will. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Oh, that's when I interrupt. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, that image is now seared into my mind. Okay. Um, I don't even know if we need to read this. I think Will just did the whole thing. Um, so yeah, I can't. I can't even talk now. That's unbelievable. Well done, Will. Um, you you win. You win the. Uh, the Amazon gift card, as Chapo would say. Um, Max is the one who actually listens can, to Chapo. <laughs> I thought that I'd listen to a lot of Chapo. I've never heard them say that. So. I haven't listened to Chapo like much more than a couple times this year. No like, need to brag. Yeah. Jesus. It haunts my dreams because I fall asleep to it. So that's by design. Um, anyway, so 
Amber A. Lee Frost, uh, co-host of Chapo, wrote an essay in 2018 that I think we feel like captures this sort of contemporary essence of the Gramscian uh, mode, one could call it perhaps, um, which is all to say that it, it sort of enacts the justification of uh, internal harm in the name of the coherence of the single organism of the working class, particularly on uh, gendered lines. And so um, the essay is called, uh, of course, Daddy Issues. <laughs> what else would it be called? Um, and the subhead is the soul of dad under socialism. Wait, no, it's not. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> what it's <sword>. called. <laughs> and then there's a photo of like a family that says men need, men need the same things women need to be good parents. Time and money. Yeah. Because we, that's the main thing is to become men. Yep. And one could even make a leap and it's, we could just say it's the dad spirit. <laughs> The patriarchal mode of production. That yeah, it's the it's the absolute <laughs> it's... Uh, aggregation of all dads that make oh. up this working class uh, historical uh, project. Definitely heard something on Tucker Carlson that sounded exactly the same as that. Yeah, I mean that's the national <laughs> popular. We got to make space for a populist movement that doesn't mm-hmm. really account for any feminism in it at all. Um, and so, of course, like the absolute spirit of the dad, um, you know, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to the absolute spirit of the dad is dad overboard. Um, and when, you know, or as as Natty said earlier, castration. That's right. Or as Natty said, castration. And this is well, this is going to be a, a fun, like linguistic uh, digression here. But um, in for Heidegger. Gewaffenheit, so thrownness, uh, which is essentially like the relationship of being thrown into a world in which your dad is gone, right? Like you're created and now you're an onto creature, which is how uh, Natty described it. <laughs> um, in, in French, it's translated to dereliction, which is a, is, a, is a shipwreck, right? And so what we have is like the progress of being is that of a bunch of dads on a ship doing colonialism wait no sorry that's wrong um producing yeah doing working class stuff yeah producing humanity yeah producing humanity in the colonies because that's what dads do max Um, is saying he remembers that heidegger is a fascist he does that's yeah i do this is what i'm saying right (laughs) yeah and so what's the worst thing that could happen to the dad spirit project of the anti-woke left um it, that is dad overboard because that's what the feminists do is they, they jump on board of the ship and throw dads off by, by, call, by calling them out, right? Like this is literally the image that's being cultivated and drawn here. And I know that is a pretty pretentious, lengthy digression. If they listen to our show, that needs to be what they're here for or else they're not going to be satisfied. <laughs> exactly. Like being is, a, being is a shipwreck and it's a bunch of dads who have been chucked overboard. Um, and so... But in this vision, right, reading from, from Amber A. Lee Frost here, in this, and then center it back on the Gramscian vision of the sort of working class as a singular organism of dads, um, we get to the point where she writes, 
anti-masculinity is a neat little trick of the liberal reactionary. The secular liberal floating reactionary. (laughs) (laughs) It's because there are misandr- like, because there are liberal misandrists, like, it's what they always do where they take, like, something real that's happening in the center, right? And then they accuse the left of that. The gender abolition, like, left comms, like, to them, they are the ones castrating, right? Whereas they're actually saying, no, we actually are saying that everybody is, like, valid and can play with gender. But also you do have to, like, look at historical idea structures that are structuring violence. And the way we read masculinity is one of them, like, (laughs) you know? Because always with left com, it's like, I just mean like the crew of like really feminist ones because they have their own within those tendencies. There's patriarchal cliques as well. <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah. Uh, as, there, as there is always on the left, hence the symptom of this mm. whole problematic, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And in the Gramscian vision, you're always castrating someone, right? Because it's always zero sum, right? And so this imagination of a bunch of phalluses dueling it out with... Uh, you know, and 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 then everyone gets subsumed into this working class masculinity as a project, right? And then the worst thing that can happen is, like, it's like, you know, in this vision, it's the women's job to support the men and be more reactionary than them, so that they can do the project of sailing the ship mm-hmm. through the isles of the Caribbean, you know, uh, creating humanity again. In a, it's it's a very colonial vision, um. And so to continue reading, right, anti-masculinity is a neat little trick of the liberal reactionary. You can get away with open contempt for working class men and their struggle for something as essential as the time and resources to care for their own children, as long as you smear them as deadbeat dads and shitty husbands. The idea that it's men, not money, who are most responsible for preventing parents from devoting more time and labor to their homes and children is so astoundingly condescending and divorced from reality that it's hard to believe anyone would have the confidence to say it out loud. Jonathan Chait. Yeah, like th- this is interesting. It's, it's also a silencing mechanism here, right? Like this is also a part of the project is to say is, and to silence criticism internally of shitty behavior because it goes... It is imagined as opposition to the broader project in a full contradiction against this sort of political, economic, singular working class counter hegemony, right? And so then there's no room. You, yeah, how do you have the confidence to say it aloud? And so she, I'll continue. But I suppose if your biggest problems in life have always been romantic or familial and not financial. <laughs> no, Sorry, no. I that. <laughs> no, we're keeping that in. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> so bitchy. Oh. <laughs> if your problems have always been only romantic, fuck <laughs> <Like> you. <laughs> I mean, and not financial. Again, this is projection here, right? One can imagine the projection here, right? Because they're in opposition. Jesus. They're seen as in opposition. And so, not financial, it mm-hmm. can be easy to mistake your resentful fantasies for a political program. And it's full circle. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the Adolf Reed critique. This is ultimately the Gramscian critique of of intellectuals that are seen as non-organic intellectuals. Is I'm over here reading uh, Robert Frost or, right, or or Silvino (laughs) Ocampo, and I'm just doing this weird literary stuff that is a distraction 
that ultimately always is this aesthetic project that is a distraction. It's a bourgeois distraction from the real concrete fight in the base, right? On the factory floor. Right. Poetry is Ezra Pound. Like, you know, you cannot have a a Scott Ferguson MMT poem, uh, as we learned from our friend Carl Beyer. In fact, he loves poetry. It's just they don't mean anything gendered or dismissive of ideas when they just say, oh, poetry. No, they mean they love poetry. This is just bad poetry. They only like Mm -hmm. aesthetic decadent Holderlin from the left (laughs) poetry. And and that's what it is. It's their poetry. (laughs) Right. It's either that. It's the decadent, like, reading Holderlin from the left poetry. Or, and like turning it full circle again, it's the self-loathing of the fact yeah. that they like poetry in the first place mm-hmm. that makes them go and some like Amber Lee Frost, read Moby Dick, right? As this sort of personal, decadent, bourgeois, self-loathing project. Jesus. Rather than... She's a lot. She's a lot. I, I mean, what, you know, I fall asleep while, while listening to, to Chapo. Um, <laughs> rather than a project ultimately that it, that synthesizes, and I don't mean this in the Hegelian way, though I mean it as a way to redeem the impulses of Hegelians, that synthesizes the aesthetic or the intellectual or the theoretical or the abstract with the political economic mode as analogous to one another and with a sort of central locus of agency. Which is gravity and black holes. <laughs> Because ultimately no. poetry, like we talked about in the last episode for for Marx, religion is not production, right? Because it's not a metabolic process. It's like, it's what we are doing all our metabolic processes in order to do. It's just like self-serving masturbation kind of thing. Drugs at night. Yes, exactly. And and yeah, and so you end up with all these kind of weird ways that comes out where it's like, oh, I can have some drugs before I go to bed, but like, you know, I'm not going to pretend that that's profound, but I am going to mention over and over again that I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I think it's so interesting. The things that stand out to me in this reading are a few. Obviously, like, okay, money is not just at fault, but is this excusable problem right right? like all all forms of social interaction that fall outside of money which is like what it's the 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 base of the production Mm -hmm. process that ultimately is is still a superstructure but we it's the it's the sort of mediation of the organic social reality um so that's number one and number two um divorced from reality and i you know she uses divorced here i think probably (laughs) Uh, quite literarily and quite particularly (laughs) here. Um, But there's this imagination that thinking about identity is divorced from the factory. Mm -hmm. And so I only flag these things to make the point that as we'll see and as we dig in, these are ideas that are not just, they don't stand on Mm -hmm. their own. Right. That like it's not just Amber Frost coming up with these ideas and justifying um the apparent uh neglect of working class men upon perhaps her. Um that in the name of uh the real causal function, which is the economy. Yeah. Uh right. And so 
And so working from there, I think we can think about teaching and education and hegemony and and populism and all of that through Gramsci. But I, I want that to like this clear trauma to haunt this conversation. Yeah. And, and in the way that, yeah. Well, it's like you have one, the thing about this, like what you guys call a lot, like a uh, univocal mindset is you can, there's only enough to have one cause and that cause can't have things that emanate or that interact with it and are part of the same thing. It's like, the cause is only this thing because we don't have enough. And then, you know, there's ways you could make some of these critiques. She always, like, makes a critique that has something to it, right? Like, there is a liberal version of, like, feminist misandry, right? Uh, there's people who write about this much more subtly. Like, Sophie Lewis writes about, you know, like, the complexities of this, that it's, like, there's two sides and they kind of interact. It's an analogy, right? Because you have the... Uh, the real hurt that people have from gender regimens and uh but you also don't just want to be counter hegemonic and so amber's trying not to just be that but then she does that again you can explain that better than me but you see what i mean Mm -hmm. and ultimately on the back end what she ends up doing is excusing hurt inflicted upon herself Mm -hmm. right because she's outside of the working class base, right? She is marginal in, in this sense. And I think that's a way of, of redeeming, I think, what, what's actually at the heart of this essay, but, not, but very particularly not on the terms in which she is offering. Right. And I think, yeah, I think that's, that's a really important point here. I don't know. There's something in, in the metaphor of divorce here as like, in a certain way, it's like it's it's giving up on the real problem, which is material and circumstantial and not either of the partner's faults. And and then furthermore, like abolition of gender for her just means let's all become men. And the only reason men are bad, yes. right? There's a whole thing not to speculate, but it, there's a whole dynamic <laughs> like there's a whole dynamic going on the way she thinks, you know, she's on a podcast with all dudes. Right. And uh me too right now, but there's definitely something to that ideological project where she's the most reactionary member of this uh, podcast of like 10 other dudes, right? And like, what does that mean? You know? Mm-hmm. And I, I was just going to say, I think what, Will, you're, you're getting at is like, there's something natural and that is the working class, that men are working class uh-huh. and shitty. Um, and just like marriage... Um, that is a, a, uh, natural bond endowed through history, mm-hmm. right? Not God, but history. <laughs> uh, right. Um, You're about to embark on a difficult journey that's difficult financially, that's difficult, like, there, there's a very kind of, I don't know, material basis that's being appealed to in the way that, that even just marriage vows are, are kind of talked about and, like, abstracted from people's agency within the marriage even like it's just like can you stick with it well they think they think thinking about the family or rethinking the family or any of that talk to them is like distraction from persuasion of the working class who naturally likes the family and in fact you have it's all breeder all this breeder stuff you know like that whole brunig line of like the family is the unit of socialism and we make new white babies yeah and and ultimately, it comes down to, like, obviously, the reified sense of history and that we, we only are endowed with what 
we have and we have to make best use of it. And that means we're married to capital, um, right? And the working class men are married to the lack, which is somehow in control of everything. <laughs> so why don't we dig in a little bit to how Gramsci talks about hegemony and what that even means so i wanted to open with uh this section from the beginning of the prison notebooks uh that is on the role of intellectuals um the quote begins the relationship between the intellectuals and the world of production is not as direct as it is with the fundamental social groups but is in varying degrees mediated by the whole fabric of society and by the complex of superstructures of which the intellectuals are precisely the functionaries the fabric and i don't know the italian but it's i just thought of the fabric as the the base source like a factory in spanish is fabrica right Mm. yeah yeah interesting so that's like the thing it grows from right right it's the factory is where life is, you know? Yeah, and as, as we'll see, he talks about superstructures, but he's he is talking about them in a very um, material sort of way. Like the superstructures, they're emergent organisms. He uses the word organic a lot, organisms a lot. Um, so he continues, It should be possible both to measure the organic quality of the various intellectual strata and their degree of connection with a fundamental social group, and to establish a gradation of their functions and of the superstructures from the bottom. The Italian school system above compulsory level is based on a division between academic, classical and scientific education, and vocational training for professional purposes. Technical and, at the academic level, scientific colleges tend to be concentrated in the northern industrial areas. What we can do for the moment is to fix two major superstructural levels. The one that can be called civil society, that is the ensemble of organisms commonly called private, and that of political society or the state. These two levels correspond on the one hand to the function of hegemony, which the dominant group exercises throughout the society, and on the other hand to that of direct domination or command exercised through the state and juridical government. The functions in question are precisely organizational and connective. The intellectuals are the dominant group's deputies, exercising the subaltern functions of social hegemony and political government. Uh, and then, Max, I saw you shaking your head. <laughs> oh, always shaking my head when I hear Marxists um, like Gramsci. Uh, I think, I mean, there's a lot of terms here, mm -hmm. and it could be useful to go through what they signify perhaps for us three in a way that might not be as intuitive for our listeners mm -hmm. the ensemble the ensemble of organisms that's that's really the main one <laughs> yeah so exactly so i wrote i wrote down i wrote down ensemble right we're thinking with individuated aggregations right yes aggregations of individuals that create an organism we have obviously organic right mm -hmm. This is material. This is in the base, right? It's literally like biologically organic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so then, of course, there's the key word, right? That is the name of this podcast, which is superstructure. Yes. Which, like, the name of the podcast is it's it's a joke, right? Because because. 
they're, the superstructure is the base or whatever you want to say, right? Yeah. The superstructure is laden analogically throughout all of materiality. It conditions it. That's where agency lies. That's where thinking lies and law lies and money lies um, and feelings. and Also gypsies are there. Also <laughs> gypsies. We'll get, we'll, oh, we'll yes. get to them. <laughs> we'll get to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, them, right, exactly. Irony, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Disclaimer. Um, irony for us, not for... No, no. Um, and so when he says superstructural elements, he literally means like, sure, historically, we have to deal with these, right? Mm-hmm. Disclaimer, history. But as a matter of natural law, they are excess, right? They are superfluous and they are not necessary to the social reproduction process. And therefore, they lie outside of sociality as sociality but i know i know it's paradoxical in that sense but that is what is being signified here and so then what are intellectuals for him they Mm -hmm. are functionaries another word or deputies for the superstructure they're the police Mm -hmm. the deputies of the will of history which is univocal and yeah yeah and so academics enforce cultural hegemony on to workers and the working class. Right. And like, I think it's, it's really useful to like spell out that argument in, in its detail in it for itself to then start to unspool it. Technicians, not poetics, <laughs> only right. techna. We only deal with techna in Gramsci because it's butch and we, we, we make things. <laughs> 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 sorry. <laughs> What's well, like when he says later, sorry, just to like, he says, uh, not to like go, get off the main passage, but way go later off. when he says an against Byzantism and he says Byzantism or scholasticism, we don't want to be too like uh, Thomist or Aquinas, right? <laughs> we have to stay uh, Franciscan. No, uh, the regressive, so scholasticism and Byzantism, you know, the East, uh, that's the regressive tendency to treat so-called theoretical questions as if they had a value in themselves, independently of any specific practice. And that's like on the left's like media sphere, you'll see that constant like self negation where it's like my whole career is communication and posting. But I just so you know, I'm aware that we're all just completely trapped and everything we're saying is just like something to say on our way towards the grave. Yeah. Just so you know, I know I'm worthless. (laughs) I know I'm worthless. Yeah. (laughs) I know I'm socially unnecessary. What's also interesting about intellectuals is that the way that they're described here is that they are like they're functionaries of the material system as it is right now and so counter hegemony that becomes basically ideas and like a counter superstructures emerging from a consciousness that the working class right now is not existing for itself it has been tricked into existing for another and that existing for another happens through hegemony and hegemony is true to that reality but it's false to our own liberated reality yeah and what's tricky always is like well people will say well it is that's where like the dialectics versus analogy is important because of course it's true that you know there's people who are you know don't serve their own interests and there are people who are um downtrodden or that work and suffer right and so and 
but it's saying it's determined, right? And it's just one or the other that all of history is a magnetic master slave, uh, I don't know, chain of being, right? Of Hegel, right? That that obviously is going to be fuzzy when it actually gets mapped onto reality. It's like, and so Gramsci always sort of like almost like the good Gramscians, like the part of Gramsci when Gramsci like becomes aware of himself and makes all these caveats. He's like, no, no, but I mean, this is institutions that we build. I don't mean that everything's like determined singulars in like a, a magnetic dance, right? Like, well, I mean, you mentioned Hegel and, and I, I like that point about the caveats too, because it's like, I don't mean that this is a ter- determined dance, except um, your existence is a determined dance right so that that's the double movement right it's so it's like i don't mean this is a determined dance but academics are functionaries and deputies of hegemony only ever yeah and that's totalizing right except maybe it's only ever except you know only historically right and so then you keep you keep doing this dance of caveats versus determinism which is very hegelian and i actually have (laughs) Uh, of course i do a quote from the phenomenology of spirit pulled up that speaks to this pretty exactly um and exactly what we're getting at here like how gramsci is very much thinking with being thrown into a sort of state of legality at which is what hegel terms it a sort of state of superstructural hegemony um which ultimately like just to make clear we reject as a framing because there's no outside of that state of Byzantism legality because <laughs> right <laughs> right there's no outside of scholasticism <laughs> maybe that's another way of putting it right um and so to read from hegel here right like in the state of legality the reality of the ethical spirit is lost and the contentless spirits of individual peoples are collected together into one pantheon, not into a pantheon of representational thought, whose powerless form lets each do as it likes, but rather into a pantheon of abstract universality, of pure thought, which takes their lives and confers on the spiritless self, on the singular person, being in and for itself. And so, of course, what we have here is Hegel sort of embracing this imagination of like a collected aggregation, one Mm -hmm. pantheon in the state of legality. And like, this can go two ways. We can either say- It's very Kantian, huh? I mean, you know, Hegel is basically subtweeting Kant this whole time, so. (laughs) Right, it's like related, but against, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so, but this can go in two ways, right? But the framing is consistent. We either have the rightward turn where that pantheon is the state, mm-hmm. um, right? It be, just becomes national, the national state, right? And we, we are all sort of subsumed, but endowed our individuality in its pure abstraction. Or we could think of it from the reverse polarity, right? Again, thinking with polarities here, we could be Gramsci, who, who sometimes goes between back mm-hmm. and forth. But what, this also means is that this, the single organism of the organic ensemble of the working class is also this sort of pure superstructural abstraction 
that endows the singular functions being for themselves in it being for itself, essentially. And so we have this working class organism that is counter to the state and counter to capital. And academics are not in it. Well, right. Except if they teach Latin. <laughs> in which case, yes. Or another way of saying it is the, the, the counterposing hegemonies have their own different types of academics, mm-hmm. right? The capital has its academics, which are bourgeois gypsy functionaries. Right. Um, and, and the working class has its academics, which uh, sort of organically intuit a, a sort of working class counter uh, intellectual project through what I think would be pretty clearly posited as their own like material suffering under the boot of capital. And then the redemption is Che Guevara writing about Hombre Nuevo and, you know, Fidel is this, yeah. Fidel re- understands intuitively what the people want and represents them, which connects into the, you know, the, the reading of Machiavelli is this metaphor for the party, which is this, you know, I don't know, Eva Peron will of history, which is, you know. Yeah. Anyway. And I think, I think then moving from there, it could be interesting um, to get into the gypsies specifically and like, why is this a problem? Because he says, uh, when one analyzes the Italian political parties, one can see that they have always been parties of volunteers, uh, and in a certain sense of déclassé, you know, the PMC. Uh, They have never, or almost never, represented homogeneous social blocs, unfortunately. However, he finds an example. One exception was the Cavorian historic right. And that was what constituted its organic and permanent superiority over the so-called action party of Mazzini and Garibaldi, you know, like in the 1800s when you're having the whole, like, unification of Italy. The latter was the prototype for subsequent, quote, mass parties in Italy, which were not really mass parties at all, i.e. they did not organize homogeneous social groups, but the political equivalent of gypsy bands or nomads. <sighs> gypsy bands or nomads. It's the thing that comes out of viewing the working class and production itself as like a material process of a social organism called humanity. It represses the fact that we analogically both are for ourselves and we are for each other. And it tries to say that we are fallen from being for ourselves, but we have to be for our collective self in order to recuperate that. Um, As long as that is univocal, it will be exclusionary. Anyone who uses in the Adolf Reed register, which, you know, is deep in, in Amber, right, of, you know, anyone who uses fancy words. It, it's no problem, though, that Jonathan Chait uses the same arguments against AOC, whereas Bernie is different. Bernie, I can't imagine why, though. That's strange. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. There's there, there's this idea that, I mean, honestly, it it is something that, that drove me crazy. Um, with Bernie, there was always this idea like the things that you always heard about him were that he sat on the outside throwing rocks rather than being a productive member of congress and you can think of congress here as like it's the political body (laughs) right like it's an organism that you either are 
working hard at what your function is supposed to be or you are not that right you're not rooted in it and therefore you're not a hard worker therefore the the things that you're saying your ideas all of these things run counter to <laughs> to the democratic party to the organism right so that's a good critique of the libs yeah as well like from like that's how the libs critique bernie mm-hmm. and then and then Jonathan Chait saying, actually, Bernie is not like that, but AOC is. But it makes me think of, um, I was listening to Adolf Reed on uh, Amy Teresa's podcast in late 2019. Um, and he talks about the anarchism of, of the, the, the left, the problem with the left, is the anarchism of, of teenagers who don't want to clean up their room. Jordan Peterson. Uh, so it gets this authoritarian, totally, and it, it's this authoritarian move that is like very latent and that's what if you read Gramsci and the, the, the these registers you can realize where some of that is coming from where this author- authoritarianism comes from you know this is the central thing that that base superstructure logic does is it's it's a formal creation that is reified and is self-exculpating and pretending that it's natural and not a creation. It's Machiavelli to its realist. You have to do it. Yeah. You have to do it for the will of history. You have to reduce to one Machiavelli, which is the party and univocal. And ultimately it's projection, right? Mm-hmm. Like it it's like this is idealism, this is um unnecessary, this is unnatural. But what ultimately is the case is that that same critique can be levied back at these people who are arguing these things. Because ultimately, everything is unnatural and everything is constructed as a social formation, right? And so starting from that point is why we have stark differences to someone like Gramsci or Gramscians in general, which is because we are leaving no stone undenaturalized, which is... (laughs) um is is quite the quite the phrase but um but and and in this and from that perspective it's not like everything falls apart into a postmodern hellscape right mm-hmm. like where everything is for itself against everything else but we can't epistemologically make any sense of it it's precisely that it doesn't yeah. fall apart and yet persists that we find the critique and the superstructure project that we've been laying out over these, you know, dozen or so episodes um, can, can actually really get at the root of why this sort of lazy thinking, and I'm sorry, it's lazy thinking, is such a problem for the left. Because ultimately, as, as like I think Will has said before, if there are non-organic gypsy intellectuals, on the one hand, and then organic intellectuals on the other, in opposition of hegemony and counter-hegemony, in this sort of duet of the superstructure, who gets to determine who's who? Right. Like, how, how does that process get activated, right? Is it because someone is literally, like, I don't know, sucking on concrete or something, that they're more <laughs> of an organic intellectual? I mean, no, obviously. Obviously, that gets decided. And that gets, there's a label that gets ascribed. And so what we would say is, you're, we're either all gypsy intellectuals or we're all organic intellectuals, right? And that doesn't mean, and precisely because that's the case, 
can there be differentiation amongst the individual intellectuals? Um, and so you don't have to cleave off one half of, I don't know, thinking humans to establish a sort of working class movement. And he's reifying like locations of like, you know, the way he thinks about the whole school system. He's like, well, the old traditional ways of Latin Greek are, are gone and that's OK. But we also have to think about how good how good it was that people just like had that like badgered into them. And it's, you know, a Gramscian would say, no, we're saying ensembles of organic institutions, which, you know, could be training you to be in society and be vocational. But or is, you know, he's always like speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Kind of. I, I think that. um to what you're saying and to what um Max was saying about like who who gets to decide which side an intellectual or a thinker is on uh you know like where are these lines going to be drawn um you know the appeal that gets made is that well there's a material objective way in which we're producing i think it could be useful to to hear um how gramsci appeals to this uh which is in in the school chapter that you're talking about um he says the discovery that the relations between the social and natural orders are mediated by work by man's theoretical and practical activity creates the first elements of an intuition of the world free from all magic and superstition <laughs> fun at parties <laughs> <laughs> we need to get those gypsy mystics out of here <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's just for communism. That's what we have to do. <laughs> so work is mediating our own appropriation of nature to to use nature, basically. Um, and it's Hegelian. Yes. And so it's that experience of work, you know, like we're literally learning from our experiences. Well, this is in the chapter called uh, The Educational Principle, and this is like right in it after a bit after what you read. He says, uh, the future is costing the present. <laughs> you know, like we're just this organic onto creature that is uh, zero sum, right? And mm -hmm. we are the sum of his history, historical materialism, right? <laughs> the sum of effort and sacrifice, which the present has cost the past and which the future is costing the present. So in the present, we're in total lack because our body is like evacuated from source and and worn out by both past and future. So there's kind of no way out also, but right. Right. I mean, I you know, to keep like to pull back to say also that this is the Hegelian view of history, right? Uh, it's a sort of aggregation of spirit, absolute spirit, um, you know, time spirit. There's there's lots of ways to to think about this, but in in thinking about it, we see how from the baseline framework, the future is costing the present necessarily implies that to get to the future, we have to cut costs. Joe Biden, the coffers are empty. They just were saying, you know. That's right. And so as a theoretical matter, right? Regardless of how we want to think about synthesis or surplus, which I think, you know, we're going to maybe spend more time on this another time. I'm trying to write something about Hegel at the moment that's going to try and work, work this out, too. But ultimately, the premise, right, again, thinking with first premises, as Natty was suggesting, because there were this onto some creature, this aggregated onto creature. 
of history of materiality and then there's the fabric that gets laid on on top um there's nowhere else to go besides to draw lines and this is the machiavellian move right and so we draw the lines and then we have to exert will to win the competition on the playing field that we've just territorialized and that is why ultimately we reject this idea of an organic intellectual um because it reifies distinction but distinction without differentiation right and so we would want to like to do exactly the opposite right which is to open to deterioritorialize, but still maintain a differentiated coherence within the within the sort of intellectual sphere of ideas and thought formation as it mediates and you know from ideas to money like mediation in general Mm -hmm. abstraction as the locus of care as natty uh, mentioned earlier and so when you get all the way to that point then you can start really insisting that oh no we have space for these so-called gypsies too Mm -hmm. right and we can afford a future and a present that has space um and it's only when you connect all those dots that you that you get to that point which is why we're we're taking umbrage with gramsci in the first place right this is not that we just hate gramsci it's that he's reproducing these logics that are hegelian that are kantian that are cartesian in his nexus of sort of sketching what he defines an intellectual yeah. to be interesting i think i think therefore i am I don't possess anything. I only use it. Therefore, I am a worker, right? Like, you know, therefore, I am included is another way of... Because poetics are not technics and never the twain shall meet, as we have have discovered on Twitter. Yeah, many a Twitter fights (laughs) have uh, made that very clear to me. Well, uh, Gramsci actually also makes it clear because towards the end of the quote, he says, uh, talking about, you know, how the function of primary schools and and teachers is to make uh, children properly aware of the dialectical... Uh, reality of movement and change um but whether or not they actually you know are successful in doing that is another story he says this requires an analysis of the degree of civic consciousness of the entire nation of which the teaching body was merely an expression and rather a poor expression certainly not an (laughs) avant-garde he hates teachers so much He, I think someone, yeah, someone really didn't like primary school. And like, I'm not saying primary school was great for Gramsci. I'm sure it was bad in many ways, but um, there's, there's something very specific about his uh, sort of loop through this, this hate that <laughs> does make me think if, if there's, there's maybe some hurt under there that needs to, you know, Gramsci needs to go to therapy um, like the rest of us. And um, to be fair, he was in prison, but yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Right. He, he was in prison where he continued to not be taught practical things about historical dialectics and the movement of history, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it's too bad that they don't teach kids that. It, you um, know, <laughs> it's exactly this point, right? Like, we, 
we say like Gramsci needs to go to therapy, like in a tongue in tongue in cheek way. But I think this also points to the fact that like to honor Gramsci's experience mm-hmm. is precisely to say that it is not what he's suggesting that we need to do. Right. I think that's another way of saying it was we need to honor his hurt and his experience mm-hmm. and to open space and not exclude and not imprison mm-hmm. and not carve off segments of the population and call them socially unnecessary and call them deputies or bourgeois functionaries, which is not to say we shouldn't like tax billionaires into oblivion, right? Or that people shouldn't have to have to take responsibility for their actions, but that as a as a matter of political theory and political economy, we don't have to do this. And he's always there's always the Perry Anderson insistence reading that you know Gramsci's in his own you know the therapy or the, the all of his caveats are kind of coming out of Lenin, not Lenin, Lenin, not Lenin, you know, but Lenin. And so there's also that. Right going on in that historical moment right but you have fascism and the failure of everyone knows Mm -hmm. these stories but (laughs) and also leninism with what didn't work as well within that right and then like he senses that but he wants to reclaim it and so he's in his own thing that parts of you know the reformist marxist left still is now where they have this very you know whether it's the italian communist party forever the indian one or in chile like they have this very dirigente i don't know how to pronounce that but uh, deputies of the the Leninist organized reformist at a class and, and uh, yeah anyway I I think also to put a finer point on this too it's like we owe it not only to Gramsci but to future Gramsci's um, and I realized I pronounced that two different ways um, uh, to to not reproduce the prison to which he was excluded to right, to, right? and his framework does reproduce the prison to which he was excluded to in a big moment in, in healing and thinking about um, thinking about a sort of project of, of historical exclusion and trauma and also individual like personal is, is realizing that you have the capacity to reproduce the prison from which you either still reside or escaped from. And, and I think what we want to do is, is rather run at that problematic reflexively and suggest here it is crucially important that Gramsci be honored as, a, as someone who was as a historical person, right? But not to take that historical experience and what he offers as a sacred cow because ultimately it's limited in its assumptions because those assumptions put put him where he was when he wrote when he wrote what he wrote yeah even though i think that he takes the assumptions like pretty much to their outermost limit Mm -hmm. as far as you can get within that framework of a singular production goal right social goal because the working class thing is saying we have to be one voice so yeah of course you have to exclude as opposed to being able to say sure we can do things together that have a purpose it's not just this again total postmodernist. we never want to have something we agree upon or that we have a principle but the point is that you have to constantly keep space open for making analogies within that as opposed to this and surplus as opposed to 
one voice, only ever one voice or univocal. I mean, it's like this podcast, right? There's three voices that (laughs) are analogically the same, but also analogically different, right? And there's space for differences and space for sameness. Um, and, And ultimately, like, one can get at this through a sort of roundabout way where it's this, like, back and forth of magnets between being for oneself and being for others that sort of ping pongs in this frictional energy that creates a sort of universality out of these uh, competing uh, oppositional particulars. But the problem with that is, is you still need opposition in a holy, like in, in a very real sense. And I think also to the point, like, and so you still need gypsies, right? <laughs> Rhetorically speaking. As a matter of dialogue, you still need gypsies to, to you, need an, you need a pure enemy um, to create one undemocratic force or voice necessarily implies justifying the actions of, uh, of those that make up that voice and then justifying activities that you wouldn't normally justify, right? In the name of that universal voice. Um, and so we start to see everywhere on the left there are plenty of um left spaces where there's just a total lack of accountability around sexual assault um and and it's i think it's precisely because of this tendency to justify activities of those considered inside the house and not have accountability in the name of what sometimes gets a sort of bad faith claim for solidarity um, that we see a real linkage and lineage to this sense of a sort of universal, singular, working-class organism, and then the, then the lack of governance structures within that organism, um, because governance structures are considered superstructures, they're outside. Yeah, and also the structures that are provided are, like, shitty, so it's, like, hard to find the structures, right, like, as well, like, within our own governance, we have these structures are so hurt, right, and so it's the wrong thing to say we want to abolish all structure, no, it's to say our structures aren't working for us, and the structures we have are, even sometimes our structures of accountability are are perpetuating violence, and and some people react to that, you know, like, this whole anti-cancel culture thing that, you know, some people come at it in an empathetic, an empathetic note, right, where there are ways in which like people feel like uh, accountability systems are not good accountability systems and but then they like go all the way the other way do you know what i mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and say we can't have systems at all ever to, <laughs> to mediate right. anything yeah, ever, because that will castrate me and kill me you know <laughs> i mean <laughs> <I'm> sorry <laughs> no no you're right you're exactly right and i think i think that you know, there, there's a few things to mention, I think, as we're maybe heading into the latter stages of the conversation, but like Adolf Reed and all the all the um, all the conversations about that recently and, and about like, you know, Amber and, and Adolf Reed, who, who certainly agree in a lot of ways, Amber Frost from mm-hmm. Chapo, um, this sense of we need to sacrifice if we're going to have a populist movement, right? And like this very much links up to, to Gramsci's sense of the national popular in this way. Um, and so that we can't be arguing about two things, right? I, I essentially is the mm-hmm. argument. We can't be having a fight about identity and be having a fight about political economy at the same time because they're univocally opposed to one another. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have one fight at a time. And they've picked a fight about money 
rather than a fight about identity because they they only see things in contradictions rather than in analogies yeah and and uh, you know goes without saying but i'll say it anyway they're picking an impoverished fight about money that is about the distribution of money in a zero-sum way exactly that corresponds to their linear materialist conception of history that gramsci is getting into in that quote where he talks about the present uh having taxed the past and the future taxing the present or costing the present. No difference there. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's the same material imagination as viewing abolition as an idealistic goal rather than an immediate practical demand because you're not allowed to actually commit to all of the things all at once. That's not how the game is played. The game is played in the present tense, looking at what exists right now, you take away as many things as you're able to take away right now in order to then create space for the new things. And you kind of move in, in that direction. And what that ultimately, you know, leads to is, is yeah, the idea that we can only have one conversation at a time. And so, of course, we need to have a conversation that is strategically univocally inclusive of as many people as possible and by univocally inclusive i mean a common denominator thing that everybody has in common rather than a commitment to everybody's different needs simultaneously which is only possible because money and the superstructure and uh the way that we afford ourselves the ability to care for everybody differently all at once is infinite when you assume that that's not infinite then you have to you have to reach for this impoverished economic common denominator that when you dig really deep is never really a common denominator because not everybody has the same economic needs at one time even if you reduce everything to distributing money not everybody needs the same amount of money right like really what you're talking about a a concrete particular set of of priorities and conventions that you have reified as being universal and having and being the the biggest most inclusive common denominator that's possible and th- and that's ultimately the furthest we would argue that you can actually take this marxist framework of a working class of an economy producing for itself rather than an economy uh producing a surplus that adds to and transforms itself completely in a non-linear way. Which comes back to the Scott Ferguson, uh, what he would call centrifugality. You're trying to, instead of having to like be evacuated into particulars, that you can have coordination at a distance and some amount of centrifugality in purpose and still be unified, right? And, you know, centrifugality could also be, you know, like Marx worrying about the Jewish question, Gramsci worrying about gypsy parties, right? Like, uh, that we're allowed to have abstraction from the pure, real purpose, that actually that is care, that that is mm-hmm. creating a new, um, yeah. It's such a kind of interesting thing that's, you know, like, whether it's Marx, uh, metaphorically speaking, of course, comparing things to Jews, or Gramsci comparing things to gypsies, it's always really funny, because you say, well, that's anti-Semitic, and they say, no, 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 that's a metaphor, he's talking about capital. But it's like, it's, like, anti-Semitism, like, it's not just this interpersonal bigotry, right? Like, it's the structural logic of 
an outside force or Jewish people or whatever thing is not rooted in the mass and in the homogenous block, whatever thing is extra to the common denominator, coming in and siphoning from the common denominator. Whether you say, oh no, that's actually capital, right? It's beside the point. Like, call it whatever you want. It's a logic of exclusion. I do believe that this, the, the greatest enemy of mankind is that uh, uh, Eyes Wide Shut is real, uh, Epstein <laughs> on the island did satanic rites, and I say this ironically, but not ironically, but actually <laughs> most of what we're dealing with is a satanic ritual from Epstein that, uh, yeah, that's from the left, I mean. Well, uh, really looking forward, Natty, to your podcast, um called something with regards to a non or pizza date or you know i i just am gonna like uh do something called mmt is for people who like no what was it <laughs> mmt is astrology for econ nerds <laughs> and i want to say that mmt is econ for astrology nerds and you're just gonna have to accept that that's actually a good thing yeah i'm gonna own that mmt mmt is astrology because uh, MMT has cosmic consequences. Ooh. so <laughs> We can even actually go a little bit further and say that Enneagram is astrology for MMT nerds. <laughs> that is correct. It's one more time through the inversion. Um, oh, well, you'll be, there'll be more. You'll, I'm sure you'll hear more about that, listeners. Um, yeah, we'll be, we'll, be, we'll be doing opiates at night, you know. So, yep, trilectics and, op- and opiates. Yeah. Self-indulgently <laughs> inverting ourselves over and over again. What we mean is, what we, what we mean is, is definitely listen again and subscribe and do all that stuff. Because I'm sure there's going to be more Natty. And as you can hear already. God. G- well, exactly. God. So and they're just like trying don't even don't even put too much promotion in. <laughs> no, no, we're going to we're going to promote we're going to promote oh, the shit out of you. Nightmare. Uh, <laughs> we found an organic intellectual on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> just want to go back to my island. <laughs> Marlon Brando's uh uh, ecological in he had in, in Tetiaroa, which you know, filming mutiny on the bounty found that he he liked Tahiti and he would you know come in to do Superman crystals and then he would escape back to his ecological socialist island he owned. That's kind of what I want to reproduce for the left. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, with that, I think we want to say thank you so much uh, for listening and also for Natty for uh, guest hosting once again. Thank you, everyone. Um, thank you, guest yeah, hosting. Fun. They're just trying to flatter me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Awful nightmare. Nightmare. <laughs>
waited for the silence so you hear this one stick in your tongue Your shallow words are never true Your shallow words are never true Your shallow words bring nothing new Your shallow words bring nothing Sweaty hands on a scale of sliding stars, too flustered to surprise. 